Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I'm really grateful to see all of you out worshiping with us this morning. In life, we have to make a decision about what we will care most. There's a lot of things, just as Chris wonderfully brought up in our communion meditation this morning, there's a lot of things that draw our focus. There's a lot of things that seek to take our attention, and we have to be very discerning about what we put our care and our heart towards, because there's a battle that rages all around us, and it's not even difficult for the discerning man of God, the discerning woman of God, to see the battle all around us. Even though this world will like to highlight the physical battles that we see, we'll hear and we'll see plenty of satellite images of Russia's troops mounting on the border of Ukraine, and we'll hear all about conflict in this region or that region, and we'll learn all about deplorable actions against entire groups of people, no matter how propagandized the uh, opening ceremonies might be about having this person help light the flame or that person light the flame. It's very easy to see some of the physical conflict in the world. But it's the spiritual conflict in the world that draws my attention. It's the spiritual conflict in this world that must be at our very core because every single thing we do is going to advance the spiritual war. But you need to make sure that you are advancing for King Jesus and the spiritual forces of the armies of the Lord, not our enemy and the spiritual forces that work against God. We have to be very understanding of what's happening for everything we do, how we tune our hearts, how we tune our minds, what we do with our lives impacts the spiritual war. Now, it's been my hope that through this series out of the book of 2 Timothy, we've seen the need to fan into flame the gift of God. For the gift of God is glorious. The gift of God is not something to be taken lightly. The gift of God is grace. And that grace is manifest in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. These are areas that we ought to be growing in every single day. We have to be fanning into flame so that we are ablaze for the truth of God. Paul, the great sage, wise philosopher, the great apostle to the Gentiles, the man who started as a murderer of Christians and ends his life a martyr for Christ, writes, in this beautiful letter, his very last letter, by the way, to his protege Timothy, a young man that he'd met decades earlier who impressed the entire town of Lystra and who was invited by Paul to go on a missionary journey with the great evangelist. This man is left in charge of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, a town replete with spiritual oppression and demonic forces. A town completely engulfed in spiritual war. This is the place Timothy is left to preach. And Paul has written him letters concerning how the church ought to conduct itself. And 2 Timothy is much more about how the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God ought to conduct him or herself when it comes to serving the Lord. 
If you've got your scriptures, would you please turn open to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're finally going to finish chapter 2, I promise. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 22 through 26 and we will complete the chapter today. If you are able, would you stand for the reading of Scripture in reverence of God's Word and in awe of the Word of the Lord? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who's taken them captive to do his will." You may be seated. This text, I fear, sometimes gets the flyover treatment. As I ask people to read the book of 2 Timothy every single day for like the last month, and you think about 2 Timothy chapter 2 over and over and over, I tend to think that it may be the case that the last five verses here, the last little bit of 2 Timothy, might get the flyover treatment. We've already heard a lot of the really good stuff. We've already heard about the soldier and the farmer and the athlete getting the victor's crown. We've already heard about a lot of the different things we must do and about how we need to avoid these and pursue these other things. And so this sounds a little bit like a repeat. It is not. This is a continuation of the Spirit's thought through the pen of the Apostle Paul so that we understand some very, very important truths. And the main truth is this. As we fan into flame the gift of power, love, and self-discipline, we recognize that our heart is either tuned towards God or it is being tuned by the enemy. These are the options. And it's out of a pure heart that we are supposed to do everything we do ministry-wise. When Paul starts out verse 22 and he says, flee the evil desires of youth. The evil desires of youth are pretty obvious and they didn't need to be explained to Timothy for he knew them well. I'll just explain them to you right now so that you know. The evil desires of youth always include pride. Youth is notorious for pride. And also looking for position. Young people want to be something. They want to be important. They want to stand out. And pride is a major, major part of this. And it is always the case that young ministers struggle with pride. This is true in my life. This is true in every young minister's life. This is how it has always been. And that's why Bible college is one of the most pride-filled places on the planet. I remember because I served both as a student at Bible college, thinking I was a better hotshot preacher than any of these guys, and I served as a professor there, now teaching some of these guys who thought they were hotshot better preachers, thinking at the same time, I'm a hotshot professor better than all these other pre-. And it's, it's just horrible. It's just a breeding ground for pride. Now, it's unavoidable. 
And so I'm not telling people to avoid going to Bible college. Quite the opposite. I encourage every person who graduates high school to go to at least one year of Bible college to really grow in their biblical knowledge, add on top of what they've gotten to through church so that they can be ready for whatever career it is they choose. I love Bible college, but you just have to understand that youth is youth even in Bible college. It's not just at Missouri State. It's also at Ozark Christian College. It's not just here. It's there. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And in fact, I remember being in Bible college having lots of stupid, foolish arguments. I love to quarrel. In fact, I was something of a quarreling champion. I I was, after all, the captain of the debate team and the mock trial team at my high school. My entire life was geared towards becoming a professional arguer. I wanted to be a lawyer. That's what my mom really wanted for me. That's what my dad wanted for me. And I was going to be a lawyer. And I was going to be a good, hotshot, slicked-back, big-city lawyer driving a Lexus. That was the plan. I was going to be a millionaire by the time I was 30. And it was all based on the prowess of my argumentation. It started young for me. I remember being in seventh grade, sitting at the lunch table, and instead of getting into physical fights because we saw what happened to the kids that threw hands, we decided to sharpen our barbs. And we would insult each other at the lunch table with the ever-increasing, vociferous, disgusting insults that a seventh grader could come up with. And we learned how to be clever and how to insult people. Nothing was out of bounds, and oh, we were rotten but it was pretty good and I got pretty quick. And then when I discovered debate, I realized you're actually allowed to argue with people. And so I argued about everything. Yes, I I love to argue about sports. I will give you my all-time greatest baseball team, football team, hockey team, basketball team, and I'm even working on soccer these days because I love to argue. It's just so fun for me. And if you want to have a fight about who are the best left-handed professional pitchers of all time, oh, we'll start with Sandy Koufax and Randy Johnson and Walter Johnson, and, uh, and we'll have a really great discussion. And I love it. I'll talk about step because it's, it's fun. I love to argue. You want to fight about movies? Oh, we can fight about movies. You like to fight about fictional superheroes? So do I. I love it. This stuff is really, really foolish and stupid most of the time. None of it matters. None of it matters. But I thought it mattered. I thought it mattered. And so I would take all these arguments that I would love to get in and I would bleed them into other things. And then I started having foolish and stupid arguments about politics. Even before I could vote, I was a political operative. I was, I was definitely ready. I would steal the political signs from the opponents, those I did not win, to try to reduce name recognition for those I wanted to lose. This was what I would do. Before I could actually vote, I would just try to reduce name recognition of the bad guy, and so I'd go steal his signs all the time. I was rotten. I was, that's a federal offense. I was horrible. I was a really, really rotten person, B.C. Less so now, but in my B.C. days, all oh, things were bad. Even when I was baptized, even when I went to Bible college, I loved to argue. And so there was this guy, oh, he was my rival. Hey, I won't even tell you his name, but man, we took every single preaching class together. And one day, in our very first intro to preaching class, we called it homiletics, I was preaching in jeans and a t-shirt. Because it didn't matter, I thought. We were just preaching to our class, our professor. It wasn't church, it was practice. I didn't think it mattered. Oh, I preached a dynamite sermon. It was, well, at least at the time I thought it was dynamite. And this guy, he shredded me up and down. But you know what? It was nothing about the content. 
It was nothing about my exegesis. He said, I can't believe you would deign to wear a Michigan Law t-shirt and jeans preaching the word of God. And I decided right then and there, this is my opponent. And I'm going to poke his eye every day for the rest of my Bible college career. And we took the same homiletics class, the same expository preaching class, and I made sure that I waited to take advanced biblical preaching an entire semester because I wanted to make sure I took the exact same class as him. And for the next three years, every single time I preached in class, I wore that exact same Michigan Law t-shirt and set of jeans just to make him mad so we could fight about it. In fact, today I'm wearing these shoes in honor of my rival because I would normally never wear these shoes with these pants. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so if you want to have a foolish and stupid quarrel about my shoes today, look, they at least match my sweater thing. So, hey, it's all right. But normally I would never wear white sole shoes with blue dress pants, ever. But I'm trying to be more casual and hip. And so, so I can hit more of that second service crowd a little bit. You know, you're trying to, to do different things to connect with the world. And some people want to fight about clothes. Look, Paul says, ladies, if your clothes are modest and you're not trying to let everybody know how fancy you are, same for the gentleman, then I don't care what you wear. I don't care if you wear boots. I don't care if you wear sandals. I don't care it's too cold to wear shorts, but in the summer, I don't care if you wear shorts. I don't care if you wear jeans. I don't care if you wear a three-piece suit. You come to the Lord, his house, and you give him your best. I don't care what you look like. I don't want to have a stupid and foolish argument about that. But somebody will say, it's not stupid. It's not foolish. Let's talk about it. And I'll say, all right, fine. Let's talk about it. Because here's what I've realized. It's not just that there are important things to argue about and stupid and foolish things to argue about. The spectrum of important to stupid and foolish, it shifts based on the person you're talking to. Now, there are some objectively dumb things and there are some objectively important things, but what we have to realize is that even things that may come across as dumb are a really big idea to some, and so we have to be willing to engage the idea and pull things back to the truth. This is what we have to do, and then we can push people towards the really, really important thing. I used to think there are just certain things that are dumb and there are certain things that are not. It's more complex than that. It's more complex than that. But here's how I know we can be on the right track. If, as a man or woman of God, we seek to pursue him with a pure heart. Now, remember, verse 22 said, flee the evil desires of youth. Flee youth, flee renown. I used to want to be the preacher of a big old mega church and just be famous and write books and let people think I was awesome. That's so ridiculous and horrible. I want to be the preacher of Glendale Christian Church till I die or till I retire. I, I want to be here forever. I never want to move anywhere else. I never want to box up my house and go elsewhere. If I write a book, fine. I want my grandkids to come visit me where their parents grew up. This is it. I want to run the 30-year experiment. I don't want to try to have the biggest, most amazing church in the world. I want to have the most faithful church we can have. And I want to dig my roots deep, and I want to grow together with you, for you, for the glory of God. So that together, we and our children and our grandchildren someday may have a place, not just a building, but a congregational home that they can come and they can grow and they can make disciples in this world. That's what I want. And I would not have been able to want that 20 years ago. 20 years ago, when I was younger than I am now, it was all about selfish pride and renown. I have eschewed that because it does not matter. 
The only thing that I want to hear is, well done, Andrew. You tried hard, you did your best, and you sought to be faithful to my word. That's what I want. I don't want to hop from place to place. This is it, man, forever. As long as it's God's will, I'm here. And you know what we have to do while we're here? We got to pursue the right things. But I don't want you to miss it. Notice how verse 2 talks about four very important things. It talks about righteousness, it talks about faith, it talks about love, and it talks about peace. And those might be the four concepts that our minds want to focus on, but it's actually the concept that immediately follows it that's most important at the end of verse 22 when Paul says, and those who call out to the Lord with a pure heart. You have a decision You can either follow those who embrace their youth and want pride and renown and vainglory and self-aggrandizement, or you can follow those who call out on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pure heart is very, very important. The Bible has a lot to say about having a pure heart. In fact, Psalm 24 tells us, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. Having a pure heart is indicative of trusting God above all else. Having a pure heart is indicative of being for God more than you are for anything else. Nothing is more important than God. You don't love Superman more than God. You don't love politics more than God. You don't love baseball more than God. God is the thing that dictates your life. And that is how you start to demonstrate clean hands. Well, that's not all. The Bible also tells us out of Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart. After David's precipitous fall, after sinning with Bathsheba, after uh, arranging the murder of Uriah, after all sorts of horrible shenanigans, David is called out by the prophet and in brokenness pens Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God. That should be our battle cry. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast your presence from me or take your Holy Spirit from me. We've got the gift of the Holy Spirit and it's by him that we can fan into flame power, love, and self-discipline. This is the spirit of steadfastness that was predicted long before the Holy Spirit ever indwelled any of us. The Holy Spirit is there. Ask God to create in you a pure heart. And not only that, but Jesus himself said, pure are blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Purity of heart is really, really important. But having a heart that's divided is so easy. When you're young, it's very easy for your heart to be divided because you want what you want. Not just the fleshly lusts, but you want the prideful lusts. You want everybody to think you're something special. That's why young people always want to sow their oats, and that's why young bucks always want to fight, and that's why young preachers always want to preach to a bigger room, and that's why young soldiers always want to go and make their name, and that's why young teachers always want to show that they're the best, and they'll become teacher of the year. That's, it's It's across the board. That's how it is. That's how it is. But having purity of heart recognizes that all these things that I want for me are are ridiculous. A pure heart is saying, I want what God wants. I want my desires, the desires of my heart, to be the desires of God's heart. And if you want the desires of your heart to be the desires of God's heart, then you've got to do two things. You have to flee and you have to pursue. 
The first thing is you have to flee. You have to flee certain things. For there are certain things, the evils of youth. You have to flee them. For even as you get older, it just gets easier to flee, but you still must flee. For how many men or women who are older still have that string of vain glory that likes to be plucked? Of course. Oh, we still do. We still have it. It's just we've learned in our maturity how to flee a little bit better. So once we flee the vainglory of evil desire of prideful, renowned youth and self-aggrandizement, we then shift and we pursue. And we have to pursue. And the four things that we have to pursue are righteousness, faith, love, and peace. These are really, really important things. In fact, righteousness is a very important concept in the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. If you want to know what you ought to do, the first step should be to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, which is why, of course, the Apostle Paul says this is the very first thing that you ought to pursue. Pursue righteousness. Righteousness is kind of like Christ-likeness. Righteousness ends with ness. Christ-likeness ends. They they go together. If you are righteous, you are Christ-like. If you have righteousness, you have Christ-likeness. Because righteousness is the state of being right before God. It means you have been justified from the penalty of your sin, and now you are actively seeking to live the way he wants you to live. It's growing in Christ-likeness. Righteousness and Christ-likeness are nearly synonymous. Seek first his kingdom and seek first his Christ-likeness, his righteousness. The more we pursue Christ and the more we seek to follow after him, the better off we are. So don't embrace yourself. That's the worst thing you could do. You need to crucify yourself. Don't trust your heart. The heart is deceptive above all things. No, make your heart pure by being after him. And as you follow him and as you keep your eyes focused on him, you can walk on water. Just as Chris talked about this morning. But as soon as you take your eyes off him, oh, you start to sink. And so you know how you avoid taking your eyes off of him? Expressing faith. Well, and love. Galatians 5, 6 says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Here's a neat little understanding. Faith is like a three-legged table. Faith involves the head, the heart, and the hands. Faith involves belief, trust, and loving obedience. Faith is our response to God's gift of grace. But what we have to do is make sure that it expresses itself through love. If you claim to have faith and yet you do not love, then you are a liar. Just read 1 John or 2 John or 3 John. John's really big into this concept. You have to demonstrate it with your love. And so the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So if you believe and trust, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you're willing to live your life through that, your life should be an outward expression of God's love to other people. You ought to love him and you ought to love them. For if you do not love your brother and sister, you are a liar. If you claim to love God, but you hate those in the Lord, then you make him out to be a liar. You must express your faith in love. That's what counts. And so as we avoid and as we flee the evils of youth and as we pursue Christ-likeness, righteousness, and as we pursue faith expressing itself in love, we seek to do good for people around us. Yes, God is at the center of who we are, but we need to be other-oriented. We need to be oriented to live for others. I have to live for my family. 
I did not do a good job of that this week. Oh, I hated Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and yesterday. I, I, I would never move back to Michigan. I don't care if I grew up there. A church could say, here's a million dollars a year, and I'd say, get out of town. No way. I'm never moving back to Michigan. If I have to live in a snow-covered villa for the rest, I, no, I, I would go insane. I couldn't stand it. It's too cold to have fun. The dog wants to go out. The kids want to go out for about two minutes, and then it's too cold, and then they want to go back in. And you can't go anywhere, and the road is still icy. And I thought, oh, man, no one's even going to go to church. Thank you for coming to church, by the way. And I was just in a bad mood and had a bad attitude, and I was not the leader I needed to be, and I've repented vociferously, and, and I've prayed with my wife that, all right, new week tomorrow, God, Sunday, your day. I finally get to go do something. Please let my attitude be towards you and let my love towards my family be evident. Because I don't think it was very evident. I, I, Diana's probably got a phone call from Kim. Andrew's just not being very loving this week because I just wasn't. It was bad news. Cabin fever got the better of me. I did not do a good job. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. My faith did not express itself through love. My faith pouted. I was a pouty, whiny little boy this week, and I repented, and I'm sorry. I need to do a better job. I need to do a much better job. And so do we all. If you have faith, but you don't express it through love, it doesn't matter. And I wasn't doing the job I needed to do. And so, I needed to do something else. I needed to work on peace. And that's why Romans 12, 18 is so important because here, Paul puts it in terms of the conditional. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, if it's possible. Sometimes it's not possible because sometimes people want to kill you. Sometimes people want to fight you. Sometimes people are against you all the time and you do your very best to be a peacemaker. And, and you, but sometimes people are just mean you, you can be at peace with mean people. Sometimes people are just weird or aloof or rotten. You can even be peaceful with mean, weird, rotten, aloof people. You can. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. All right, and, and here's how you can do it. It's not just you. It's the Holy Spirit inside of you. Fan into flame the gift of God. He hasn't given us timidity, but power, love, and self-discipline. Exercise some of that spiritual power to express the love outwardly and have some self-discipline to be at peace. You don't have to be rotten to your family. You can just empty the dishwasher instead of passive-aggressively letting it sit there for a day and a half. No, just do it. That's what I had to do, remind myself of. Just do the stuff. Self-discipline. Serve your family. Serve your church. Love your neighbor. Do the things you ought to do. As far as it depends on you, and oh, by the way, it's not just you. It's Christ living in you through the Holy Spirit. So I bet you can get it done. Now, as you pursue these things, recognize that you're fleeing the evil desires of youth. You're pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, but also along with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We have to follow those who call, who call the Lord. Just like righteousness is just like Christ-likeness, so we have to follow other men and women who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You've got to do this together. You've got to have a Paul figure. Just as Timothy knew, I can follow the Lord just as Paul follows the Lord. I'll try to follow Paul. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You've got to have a good human example. You've got to. You've got to. And you've got to be a good human example also. 
This is so important because when you do this, you're able to do what God desires of you. And that means if you are pursuing the right things and avoiding the wrong things, you know what you can do? You can avoid having foolish and stupid arguments because they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. I need to be kind. And if you don't think that I'm kind, well, then why would you ever listen to my words? There's, there's an expression I used to really dislike, and it goes something like this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I always thought, ah, oh, that's dumb. If you're smart enough, they ought to listen. And that's, that's, that's youth speaking, isn't it? You have to let them know that you care. Because if the people to whom you preach don't think that you care, then why would they ever listen? I have to be able to teach. And so if I'm filled with zeal, but I can't explain God stuff to people, then this is not the job for me. I, I have to avoid stupid and foolish arguments. That, that means, you know what I don't do? Anything on Facebook. You know what else I don't do? Ever log into Twitter in my entire life. I've never gone to Twitter. And there are people who are like, Andrew, Twitter's made for you. It's just people who fight with each other in 240 characters. And I say, that was made for me 20 years ago. Before it existed, I would have been great at Twitter. No, no, I've never gone to Twitter or Instagram. Ever. And I don't want to. I go to Facebook once in a while and I never post anything. Because all it is is fights. And I will get snookered. I'll get drawn into them and I'll fight with people. Now, I will post some things. I'll tell you who I'm going to vote for school board. I'll tell you what I'm going to do here or there. And then when people ask me about stuff, I don't even know that I'll answer them. Just know this. I've prayerfully sought out the reasons and I've got my reasons. And if you want to know, you can talk to me in person. I don't want to have an internet explanation with you because it's going to devolve into a stupid and foolish quarrel. I don't want to be quarrelsome. I, I want to be gentle. I, I want to be able to teach, not resentful. And, and you know what causes resentment? When people who are on the other side of stupid and foolish arguments exist. That's what causes resentment. I resent everybody who thinks that, oh, I don't know, Andy Pettit is a better pitcher than Randy Johnson. I resent them, and I want to have a fight about left-handed pitchers. I resent anyone who says, oh, yeah, Captain Marvel is better than Sue. I'm like, oh, okay, ready? I resent. No, it's dumb. It's dumb. It's dumb. Like what you like. I used to get mad at people who didn't think that Metallica was the best band of all time. When, when this one kid named Jonah said that the drummer from Dave Matthews' band was a better drummer than Lars from Metallica, I almost got into a fist fight with him. I pulled over and I stopped giving him a ride to work. I was his ride to work that day. And I made him walk the rest of the way because he didn't agree with me. That's, that's you just resent, it's no good. It ruins your heart. It ruins you. And we have people who aren't just young doing this. We have people who are way up in years and they are stuck in the political trenches and they resent everybody with whom they disagree and it ruins their hearts. How many politicians call out on God out of a pure heart? Very few. Well, that's pretty judgy of you, isn't it, Andrew? I don't think so because they spend a lot of their time doing foolish and stupid arguments and they're pretty quarrelsome and the Lord's servant must not be. 
So, I don't think so. There's a better way. There's a better way. And you know what that better way is? It's knowing that opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will give them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses. Did you know that in the Bible, there are only three references to people coming to their senses? Only three. Two of them are by the Apostle Paul. One is here to Timothy. Gently instruct your opponents in the hope they will come to their senses. The other is by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians where he says, people must come to their senses and stop being foolish. And then the third one is by the Lord Jesus in Luke 15 when he talks about the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. And after he'd squandered all his dad's money and after he'd gone to the foreign country and had wild living, it says, he came to his senses. For he was so hungry and so starving that he was ready to say, even the servants at my father's house, they've got better food than this. And he came to his senses. And he says, I'm going to go home and I'm just going to beg to be my father's servant. He came to his senses. Everybody who disagrees with me I hope comes to their senses. Oh, I'm not talking about stupid and foolish quarrels. I don't care. If you don't like my shoes today, I'll wear better shoes next week. I don't want to have a fight about that. If you think Spider-Man is better than Superman, I don't want to have a fight about that. If you think this movie is better than that movie, I don't care. If you think that God is one person, oh, now I'm ready to fight. Because God is three persons, one being. I'm very ready to have that fight. And on things that matter, I'm ready to go to the mat. And I will fight till my dying breath for the truth. You say that God does not exist? That's a tussle I'll have all day long. You say Jesus didn't come back from the dead, tangibly, bodily, truly, oh, we'll fight. And we'll fight long and hard. And I will crush your arguments in the hope that gently you will come to repentance. I'll try to be nice to you, but I will try to eviscerate what you think. Because I want God to give you repentance. Because do you realize that when it comes to God stuff, not stupid stuff, not foolish and quarrelsome issues, not things that don't matter, even though they might matter tangentially because they're connected to things that God care about, understand this, there's stuff that matter to God and that's doctrine and God stuff. And then there's stuff that's tangentially connected, like how we do certain things regarding certain people, okay. And then it gets farther and farther from the center and the farther and farther from the center, the less God cares. And so the more we can bring it to the center, the more you're ready to go. You have opponents that must be gently instructed. And here's why. Because those who, when it comes to center issues, are wrong, they're living in the will of the devil, not the will of God Almighty. And the devil is happy for that to happen. Did you know that in Ephesians 6.1, Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes? And notice that the full armor of God includes things like the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, almost kind of like the things he's talking about here in this passage, along with the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Let's go. Let's get ready. Let's arm up. Let's put on the armor of light. Let's get out and let's get ready to stand against the devil's schemes because he's coming all the time. And if you don't have truth affixed around your waist and you don't have righteousness of guarding your heart and salvation over your head and holding the, the faith shield and swinging the sword of the Spirit with your feet readied with the gospel of peace, oh, what's going to happen? You're going to start fighting about stupid things. And I don't want you to do that because that's playing right into the devil's hands. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves to God then. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Notice how you're supposed to flee from the evil of youth, but you're supposed to resist the devil. If you resist the devil because you have the power of God, he will flee from you. He will not want to mess with you. Do you understand that? He won't want to mess with you. Now, he wants to mess with you because you're an easy target. So if you make yourself a harder target by putting on the full armor of God and you resist him, he's going to be like, well, this is a waste of time, and he's going to move on. Resist him and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Oh, a pure heart? Remember having a pure heart? Yeah. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why? Well, it's very easy to understand why because we have, in our next slide here, we have the understanding that God knows that Jesus is here to destroy the works of the devil. The one who does what is sinful, he's the one who's of the devil. The devil's been sinning since the beginning, and the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. You understand that, right? Yeah, Jesus came to die. Sure. Yeah, Jesus came to save. Mm -hmm. Jesus came to destroy also. All these things are part of the the diamond-like facets of why Jesus came. You hold it and you twist it and you see a new aspect sparkling down. The reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to crush, stomp, and destroy everything the devil put out there. And his will is bad news. The devil's will is way bad news because they have to recognize that if they do not have the truth about the center God stuff issues, they are doing the will of of the devil. Oh, you're ready to preach that God accepts all kinds of sin instead of eschewing wickedness? You're doing the will of the devil. Oh, you're ready to tell me that the nature of God is different than God has revealed it? That's the will of the devil. Oh, you're ready to fight about stupid things that don't matter? That's the will of the devil. There's a better will that I want you to follow. Jesus explains it in John 6.40. He says that my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. I want you to be in the will of the Father. I want to be Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led. If you're going to do the will of the devil or the will of God, do the will of God. The will of God is very simple. Look to the Son and believe. Now when you believe, that starts the door to faith. Believe, not just in your head, but with your heart. And when you believe in your heart that he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, then you will be able to do something with it. And you'll be able to express that faith and love to the world. And you'll be filled with the Spirit. And you will be able to do and fan into flame all that God wants for you. Power, love, and self-discipline. This is what God wants for us. The will of the devil is that you'll fight about dumb things and you'll be wrong about important things. Don't. Don't do that. How many Christians unknowingly are living in the will of the devil because they had really stupid, bad teaching? They had teaching that wasn't from the Bible. In fact, it was the opposite of the Bible. I'm really, really willing to fight those people. There's a guy named Dale Tuggy. Oh, I love to fight Dale Tuggy. I'd love to arm wrestle him someday just to see, but uh, uh, not physical fight, just arm wrestle. I've been working out. Maybe I can take him. But Dale Tuggy is a super PhD genius in California, and he writes all kinds of books on the Trinity, and he hates the Trinity a lot. And he's made fun of me a lot on his blog because I wrote a 196-page PhD dissertation about the logic of the Trinity, and um, he was one of my opponents that I was seeking to instruct because he's wrong. He thinks that God is not triune. He thinks that God is just one person, one being. 
and I spend many, many pages explaining the truth to him, and I'm ready to fight about that topic all day long, every day. And even though you seek to be as gentle as you can, do you know what happens when you seek to explain the truth to people who don't believe the truth? They start to mock and belittle and make fun of you. And so I've been mocked and belittled and made fun of by this other PhD guy. Like, good job, man. Like, like why don't we grow up? Why don't, why don't we have a fight about this? You know who I'm trying to convince when I have a fight about stuff that matters? Not just my opponent, but everybody else listening. When I write my dissertation, sure, I want to convince Dale, but I also want to convince every single person reading. And when I fight with somebody about the resurrection, yeah, I want to convince the guy I'm debating, but I want to convince everybody who's listening. And so, what I want you to do this week is arm up for the spiritual warfare. Here's how I want you to do it. I want you to read 2 Timothy 3 every day this week. Move on from chapter 2. Start doing chapter 3. Read it every day this week. It's going to be great. We're going to jump into chapter 3 next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. Read it every single day. And then I want you to contemplate having and maintaining a pure heart. I want you to think long and deep about, do I have a pure heart? What is it to have a pure heart? How do I get it? And how do I maintain it? I want you to contemplate that. I want you to really think deeply about that. And then I want you to pray. And when you pray, I want you to pray that those who oppose the truth will come to their senses, escaping the, tra the devil's trap. There are lots of people who are not in their senses, but are in the trap of the devil. They're doing the will of the devil right now. Some of them preach on Sunday mornings. Some of them write books. Some of them are out there. Some of them are in town. They're there. And I want you to pray for those who do not believe the truth, who twist the truth, even just a little bit. For if you twist the truth a little bit, you change the truth a lot. And I want you to pray for those who twist the truth that they will come to their senses and they'll escape the devil's trap. Because I don't want anybody to go to hell, but there are whole bunches of people who claim Christ and yet it'd be better for them um, if a millstone was tied around their neck and chucked into the sea than for them to keep doing and preaching what they're preaching. Some of that is, is actually happening. Now it's up to us to know the word to see if what is being taught is accurate. And last, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pursue righteousness and peace. These two concepts. Faith and love, you've been working on that for probably 50 years. Righteousness and peace. I want you to pick one or both of those. And I want you to develop a spiritual training task aimed at strengthening them in your life. Like if you say, I want to grow stronger in peace, I want you to come up with a very specific task for how you can live at peace with somebody. And so it might be, I live all alone, and so I'm going to go to the store, and I'm going to get in line, and then I'm going to get out of line when I see the grumpy guy, and I'm going to say, hey man, why don't you go? Go ahead. You seem like you're in a bigger hurry than me. Wow, that's peaceful. That's not weak. That's just kind. That's fine. Or maybe you say, you live with a lot of people. You're like, yeah, I'm going to be nice to every single person with whom I live this week, no matter what. You should be that way all the time. But if you have a goal that says, I'm going to do that today, you might follow through. Or righteousness. Say, I'm going to develop this goal or that goal. And I want you to come up with a very specific task that you can put into place so that you can grow in righteousness or in peace in your life. Because that's what God wants for us. He wants you to flee wickedness, pursue goodness out of a pure heart so you don't do the will of the devil, but instead you do the will of God Almighty. 
Would you stand with me as we pray this morning?